I would like to share some food with you. A feast of delicious Irish food that is grown not in the Irish countryside, but on the waste ground and derelict sites of Dublin City. I want to bring you to hidden food gardens that have been created on abandoned city sites, on official dumps and vandalised spaces. By using the waste from our city, these concrete sites have been transformed into bountiful wonderlands where you can pick fresh, organic, local produce. But even before we taste what food people are growing, first there is the food that simply grows wild in Dublin. My first shopping trip is with Micheál Murray, who forages wild food in Dublin 8. I suppose the, the, the traffic sounds, though, do bring you very much back into the city as well, which is a good thing to remember that you're not in the countryside, you are actually in the middle of the city. So we are currently in the War Memorial. We've just come behind some of the trees up onto a bank between the War Memorial and the motorway on Cuttingham Road. This sort of wild area stretches back into the Liffey Valley Park and then that runs all along by the river and then back up and goes out towards Ballyfermot as well. These, this is our native, our own native wild cherry tree um, and they're very sweet. Now they don't taste like those huge big cultivated ones that you'll buy in the shop. There is a, an abundance of cherries here. Sort of late May, June You'll get lots of them here. Now, they're tiny little fruit, so when I come for a walk, I'll help myself to a few of them. Other than the fact that the motorway is on our left, we could be deep in the countryside somewhere. Um, and it's a very peaceful place, obviously, other than the traffic. But where we're going to next is probably even more surprising because it's even more wild in lots of ways. This still feels a little bit like, oh, maybe it was planted. But the next place that we're going to, if we can get through here, you can't always get through here. Have you, you, have, have you been in there? No. No. Wow, where is this? So now we are in the Liffey Valley Park and we are looking at some rowan berries. Rowan or mountain ash, as it's also called. And they are like clusters of very vivid red berries. Like the reddest red you could possibly imagine. And these are, would you like to taste one? Yeah. Extremely bitter. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, extremely. I actually kind of like them. <laughs> In a bitter kind of way. And I've made some lovely syrups out of these and you can make jam out of them. It, you try to get the balance between the sugar and the bitterness in them because you don't want it to completely lose that bitterness. You still want to have that. So they can be very good with cheese. I've used it as um, a syrup to pour over cakes. But also the bitter astringency has a, a really good herbal effect and a good um, tonifying effect on your system. So um, they're full of goodness. I, I just absolutely love these trees. They have huge folkloric traditions and stories around them as well as a protective element against witchcraft against fairies you would put them around your door at different times of year also they would protect the milk from your cows and the cows themselves so um, beautiful flowers kind of like 
elder flowers earlier in the year, but they don't have that real strong kind of perfume that you get from, from elder flowers. And people generally leave them alone because they're so bitter. But um hasn't stopped me doing. <laughs> but I guess the leaving them alone is good for the birds. It's really good for the birds. These are a really good source of food for them. When you are, or, and if you are, coming out to pick anything and I, I must also make the point that you are not allowed to pick in munis- municipal areas or parks but if you are going foraging or you are going picking remember this isn't a supermarket this isn't a shop the birds eat these other animals eat these and they are their primary food source we can go nip down to the shop and buy whatever we need they can't so it's their food not really ours we're just helping ourselves to a little bit of it because you know because it connects you with nature you know because it connects you with something really rich and uh, something really powerful when you live in the city it is easy to become disconnected from nature the changes of seasons are not always that obvious and with our food too there are no real seasons our food is transported from all over the world so that we can have what we want all year round. So finding little parts of the city that will connect you with the natural world and connect you with the passing seasons because I think it's such an important thing that we keep connected with the natural cycles, you know? Michal's foraging walks, which he calls taking a leaf, make you aware of the abundance of wild food that grows in our cities. My experience of picking wild food is limited to blackberry picking in the autumn, which on the rare occasion I do always makes me feel like a kid again, a giddy feeling of connecting with a little bit of wilderness. But I never imagined that on my doorstep there are cherries that grow wild. But all around us there are wild plants that are edible, like clover with its pink and purple round flower heads. And you can use these flower heads to make tea. Put a load of them into a brown paper bag and throw them in the uh, in the hot press. They'll dry out in about three weeks and you can make a tea from them. I love the tea from red clover. It tastes not dissimilar to a rooibush tea. It's not something that everyone will go, mmm, red clover tea, that's delicious. This, <laughs> I really like it and it's again, it's a good tonic. Michal's foraging walk led us around the beautiful Liffey Valley. But it is also in the derelict sites of the busy streets of Dublin that you can now find growing the most wonderful range of fresh organic food. On Thomas Street, which is in Dublin 8, one of the oldest parts of Dublin, just up the road from Christchurch Cathedral, there is the Clock Pub, beside which is a small shop that was called A4. And it was outside here that I met Rian Coulter. And uh, when we were running something there in 2012, when we got the keys to it, we ran around and opened the back door and then we discovered that this part of that shop is almost two acres of what was then a complete cesspit of cans, fridges, mattresses, uh, you know, every kind of urban invasive species that you can imagine was in there. But it was so impressive because it was a huge, big kind of open green space and it was kind of like through the through the wardrobe, you know, <laughs> uh, into Narnia. and uh... Opposite the Oliver Bond Street flats, there is a metal gate, behind which is the two acres which stretches to Thomas Street. This Narnia is called Our Farm and is owned by the National College of Art and Design, NCAD, 
Rian and his fellow NCAD students, along with local gardener, Tony Louth, turned this derelict dumping ground into an amazing vegetable and fruit garden. We're looking out over uh, about 15 beds of kale, carrots, potatoes, uh, salads, and, and then in between that we've got fennel, beetroot, herbs, coriander, parsley, mint, fennel, and then over here is kind of a dolly mixture of I think it's pak choy and maybe some rocket. Uh, there's onions, leeks, more salad, kale, 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 and some rhubarb over there as well for dessert. You know, this is really top-notch, organic, zero-food miles food. This incredible vegetable garden was once an abandoned concrete car park. Underneath my feet, there's a carpet of soft, spongy mulch, but underneath which there's still concrete. So, sorry, underneath this is concrete? Yeah, yeah. This is all a concrete uh, site. It only goes down about seven or eight inches down here. And then those beds are, are raised hotbeds over there. So that's where we get the, the, the depth for that. Uh, the fertility is down to the fact that we're using a, a lot of horse manure mixed with coffee groins, seaweed. And it, it works quite nicely in terms of... You can notice actually when you spread fresh stuff on top that the growth that you get back out of it really you know shoots up. Uh, quite quickly. That is the idea behind our farm, to turn the city's waste into a shared space for growing seasonal, local, organic food. To set up our farm, they partnered with organisations such as Antashka and Dublin Growers. They continue to build partnerships to create a shared resource with organisations like Community Addiction Programme, Merchants Key, DePaul Trust and the Garda Youth Liaison Office. And we also didn't want it to be a com- community garden in the sense that it was you know the panacea to all the community problems in inner city Dublin it does provide people with a, a certain degree a certain skill set also different contacts and it is something that people can engage with and I think thankfully people have in a very short period of time engaged with us and gone on to find employment in gardening and horticulture and landscaping and maintenance and that is kind of you know what we're here for along with as I said having a good time as well because you know people can can come here they can work definitely if Tony was here he'd be uh, reading the riot act about what work needs to be done but also it is a, is a place for people to come and to enjoy Dublin City and to see uh, that you know there are interesting and kind of active people doing things and you know if a bunch of absolute novice art students can make a garden that feeds them and uh, entertains them, I think, you know, you can do, do an awful lot besides. The idea of urban farming is growing in Ireland. As Rian said, there are interesting and active people out there turning our wasteland into productive growing spaces. One such person is William Brennan, who helped set up the Dublin Growers Association. Just over the Grand Canal towards Crumlin, I met William on Sundrive Road. And he walked me down Blarney Park to his most recent project. Uh, just off to your left here is the laneway. That's where we'll go up to the community garden and allotments. Yeah, so this is uh, going back about four years. It was just a waste ground. It belongs to Dublin City Council and that. So they uh, approached us one day and that, well, we were on the lookout for it because we were setting up community gardens all over the place. 
and he asked us will we have a look and I said we came down and had a, had a look at it and that, you know. The derelict site was being used as an illegal dumping ground, but its potential was obvious to them. They took it over and turned it into the Blarney Park Community Gardens and allotments. It's here now, we have the river running here and River Dada running down there and that, you know. And of course it's full of wildlife as well and that because it hasn't been used much and that. Uh, there is a heron comes down, there's ducks come down here as well that to nest. Uh, one one day I came in that the heron shot out there and frightened the life out of me. <laughs> and uh, there's a butterfly still going around in September. So you have different people here with uh, different ways of growing and all. This guy's like a, a naturalist grower and it just lets things grow. And he gets a surprise, he gets a surprised amount of stuff. He has a lot of herbs there as well. And, uh, and then you can see the raspberries where they can get out of control. He's a great crop of raspberries, I'd be yeah, delighted yeah, with that. Yeah. yeah. This is his beetroot here. Oh, a big fat beetroot. It's a corn. That's a huge crop of corn, that's yeah. brilliant. You wouldn't think, you know, you get corn grown here <laughs> it's very peaceful yeah it's very quiet even though you're next door to a shopping centre not really and that you know you'll hear all the bottle banks could be in the middle of the country oh you could be you can hear some of the wildlife birds and all that hi there how are you doing how are you we're admiring the growing coming <laughs> do you want some uh, japanese fruit it's very bitter yeah, if you put it in yogurt and that, like you have That is the thing about community gardens and allotments. They are great social spaces. And that is one reason why local authorities, such as Dublin City Council, support them. They work on so many levels. They bring people together, they improve the environment, as well as providing people with local organic fruit and vegetables. It might be obvious now why they should be supported, but it wasn't always. Until about 2007, there was no real initiative around community gardens in Dublin. A group of us who were on the kind of the same vision and that got together and, that, and we kind of started up the community garden movement. No, it wasn't kind of the very beginning of the community garden, but we kind of just revived it as well. And where, which, where did you start first? Where was your first garden? The one that I came across is on South Circular Road, a group of people who were at to be on the canal there. And they were at the start there just, you know, because they were unemployed and need something to do and they didn't want to be sitting around doing nothing, they wanted to be out active. So they were on the canal growing uh, and then they got evicted after. The site they spotted on South Circular Road was owned by ST Salvage Company, who gave the group permission to turn the site into a thriving community garden. That's where the community garden kind of started really from we got a kind of group of people together and we started farming and we go around we found other people from other areas were inquiring about you know uh, that they see derelict site what can they do with it so they started asking those questions and that. The Dublin Community Gardens Association is a voluntary group that gives support and guidance for people setting up and maintaining community gardens. There is now over 32 community gardens around Dublin all age groups and all social backgrounds and all cultures as well and people bringing their different culture ideas from where they originally came from and not where they were born and that's that's the great things that I like about it you're learning all the time you're picking up new ideas and, and it's also getting people to talk to each other as well and to build up community spirit in the area that, you know, and this is where we hope to kind of get people to be more involved in getting nature back into the city because it's no point in just living in a concrete jungle and all that, you know, you, children have to be to know where their food comes from and what's involved in growing food so you'll have appreciation. Nothing 
nothing extraordinary about it. You know, a lot of people all over the world are doing things like this, turning wasteland into uh, environments that uh, socially you know, can be interactive. It's it's all kind of learning from each other, and you know, we learn from nature. And I don't think nature learns from us. And that. <laughs> I think it's just a one-sided effect on that one. <laughs> Because nature are millions of years ahead of us, and that you know we're we're only here for the last few hundred thousand years, and all. So nature has a has a really good head start, and all that you know. Another key player in the Dublin Community Gardens Association is Shodine O'Sullivan. She's an artist, and her practice explores the politics of food, looking at the issue of land and food production in cities. She was one of the initiators of the first community garden in Rialto. On a fine September morning, she invited me to an orchard in Dunleary, which has been the inspiration for her next community growing project. You can see at the moment there's loads of cooking apples that are um, on the trees, and there's also some crab apples on that side, um, which we've just made crab apple jelly from. <laughs> made it last night. Um, and there's also pear trees, plum trees, And this over here is a hazelnut tree. Lots of kind of diversity, you know, and lots of choice. And stuff comes into season at different times. So over the last two months, we've been able to come with my two children, who are five and three, and pick um, from the orchard and take it home and bake cakes and make um, preserves and jelly. And, you know, so it's quite nice as a, a amenity to be able to come and use it. And whose is it? Like, where are we? So we're in the um, IADT, which is the Dunleary School of Art and Design. And at the back of that school, there is this really old orchard um, space with a walled garden. Because the um, building used to belong to the Christian Brothers, it was a Christian Brothers school's, it's so beautiful. But isn't it mad that this is just in the middle of Dunleary and free for anybody to use? Mm. Yeah, um, the fruit is there for the picking because most of it actually just falls and is um, left on the ground. It is, I suppose it's quite unusual and that's sort of why I've, I've been attracted to it, is to have an orchard that's quite an open space and a space that um, anyone can access. Yeah, it's just a kind of sanctuary. You can already hear, like just here, is the sound of the school next door. And then there's lots of bird um, song. And in order to have an orchard, you generally have to be a wealthy landowner because you need quite a lot of land to grow fruit trees. What I start to think about is who then has access to those spaces large amounts of the population wouldn't have access to romantic, lovely orchards, um, except now some have come into public ownership through you know, the procurement of heritage buildings and that. So I started to think about food colonisation. Well, when we think of colonisation, it's about occupation, occupation of land generally. Also this idea of labour, who labors to produce our food when you start to produce your own food you actually see how much work goes into 
um, making the food and then you also start to reconnect with the seasons and with nature which benefits mental health so good for mental health um, to be putting your hands in the earth planting seeds watching stuff grow you know and I suppose all this thinking has emerged from my involvement um, early on with the community garden and the politics of food Um, so all these narratives are emerging from this orchard which I'm um, building into the project for next year for Rialto. The thing with an orchard as a food project is it's very low maintenance. It involves pruning maybe once a year. So I think that it's possibly a really effective way to have food um, in the city. Shodin's community orchard project, called Hard Graft, is with the arts organisation Common Ground. Working with community groups in St Andrew's Community Centre in Rialto, Heritage Irish apples have been grafted. The plants will be used to grow community orchards in Dublin 8. So imagine being able to pick your apples when you're out for a walk in Dublin, rather than flying them about 5,000 miles, which is about the food miles an imported apple will travel to reach our supermarkets. I think it's just about imagination. It's about people um, wanting, you know, orchards and um, and that's what happened with the community gardens is people were like oh we get this and we see why this is important and loads of from grassroots level loads of people just um, procured land and just started growing um, food and um, the same thing um, could happen with you know orchards Um, people could decide that in my neighborhood I'm going to plant some or some trees on this public land and then just speak to their local um, council and, you know, get it set up. So, Imagination has created another community food-growing space. If you walk around Rialto and the site of the old Fatima Mansion flats, you'll see a large dome, which looks like something you might see in a science fiction movie. This is Dublin's first geodesic grow dome the ultimate 21st century growing space. It stands about the height of a double-decker bus and is made up of 75 transparent triangle panels which are formed into a large dome. Ivan Rin showed me around. It's an amazing thing, this space is in the middle of the city. Yeah, it's very nice, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really nice structure. And how long will it last? Uh, The polyethylene on the outside will last about seven years. Um, our next one we build out of a, out of a solid structure because this is just a prototype really to see what works and what doesn't work really. And what's what's been a solid structure? Polycarbonate, so the same material they use for like riot shields or safety glasses, that kind of hard or bulletproof glass, that kind of hard plastic. Um, and it's also really good for insulation. We want to minimise um, any kind of heating we need to do in the winter time so we can grow consistently all year round. The structure is also really really useful for the wind. It's, it's a It's a dome, circular shaped. The um, the wind just rolls off it or rolls around it. The Grow Dome project is an intensive all year round food growing space. And by using harvested rainwater and solar power, it is fully sustainable. To maximise the growing space, the vegetables and fruit are grown vertically in A-frame beds using hydroponics. Hydroponics is a method of growing plants without soil. There's nutrients added to the water and then the water is circulated or just let sit and the plants absorb it. Um, and you can grow plants much faster and healthier. 
there's there's no pesticides used in the growing. Well, this is one bed that we built, which is an uh, it's called an A-frame bed. So it's a it's a tank with a series of pipes. The water is then circulated through the pipes uh, to feed the plants. What are those? Small little um, cubes of rock wool that we we start on, as a nursery. We plant seeds in there, leave them in there for be three or four days until they sprout, and then we move them into the system. Why rock wool? Just water absorbing, and um, it's also easy to transport the plant. So do you plant the whole rock wool, or do you move? Yeah, the we just just plant that. Like they're all in rock wool as well. So that's your planter. Yeah, yeah. So you take little squares. Yeah. And you put them into the hole of the pipe, and that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's easy garden. <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, it's pretty easy going. So basically, you could grow anything as long as it's above the ground. As long as it's above the ground, yeah. Um, any kind of leafy green is quite easy to grow with these. Well, we're saying if this is fully grown, you can grow um, like a thousand lettuce a week. For this kind of stuff is really big, is in like Singapore, where ground is like really expensive, and you need to kind of uh, use the area to, or use your the, your space to the best of your advantage. But the same, I suppose, in Dublin, we have we, like we have many derelict sites within the city. Initiative whether our our kind of mission was to take over derelict spaces and reclaim them and turn them into productive food growing areas. Surrounding the Grow Dome is Flanagan's Field Community Garden. Mick Cooper gave me the tour. Uh, this, this is my own invention here. This is a, a flower garden. This is this all waste, all waste ground here. So I decided to fill it all in and just put wildflowers in it. And this, this is another section here. This is, this is just a pathway. That's all a big walk out, 40 mile out, when they were knocking it down. Isn't that amazing? So you've turned it into a little uh, bridge, a little yeah, a yellow bridge. brick road? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a bit of history in here, like, you know. So when the flats were knocked, what happened? They nearly broke everything up and just concreted it. And just left it? And just left it. You see, there was a football pitch there. And the playground, so the young ones were running amok in it, so we decided that we'd take it over, turn it to a little garden. And the people in the area got together and they all walked on it. And but before that, it was just a concrete slab? It was, it, was just con- it was just concrete, yeah. And now? And now look at it, it's a community garden. <laughs> on this once concrete wasteland, the locals now grow their fruit and vegetables. Down at the bottom is a fabulous garden shed, which was made by the local men's group. Well, actually, in the, in the, tea, in the tea room and the office, that's, that's me office down there, because we keep all the rewards. And so what awards have you won? We've won Garden of the Year, and we, uh, we won it for different, different things. Like, the, the, the best thing about it is uh, it's a great chill-out time. I, lo- I love coming out to the garden because simple reason why because you get the stress sitting in the house. And you can come over here, you can read a book or you can listen to the radio. Or it's the ultimate men's head. This is the, yeah, this is the ultimate head. The whole garden is the ultimate men's head. I used to live here, right in this garden here. When the fats were here. That's part of my life I was living here. But still here. <laughs> we haven't went anywhere yet now so far. People in the area now, the kids and all like are grand. You know, they're not as wild as they used to be in Fatima years ago. The kids used to run a muck in Fatima, but now the, the kids nowadays, they just, they just kind of do their own thing now. I get a few of them in the garden here now helping out with that. So oh, what about vandalism? Um, no, no, that's one thing I have to say that we... we 
We, n- we never got, n- nobody ever touched that in the game. I have to say that now. Isn't that amazing? So you're sitting here in your office and this used to be your flat? Yes, I used to live just right over there. <laughs> and now it's your garden? And now it's my garden. Really? Well, not my garden, the community garden. Don't, don't, that's only a figure of speech. <laughs> well, nearly everybody says that's a mixed garden. These community gardens, which have been lovingly created from waste ground, are owned and loved by those that tend them. They are true neighbourhood gardens. Cathy Day brought me to the Citric Compost Garden in Stony Batter, just over the Liffey on the north side of Dublin. This is a tiny little patch, no more than three metres wide, at the end of a terrace of houses. Yeah, this is my street, just up there. So this is the garden here. It's, a, it's the end of terraced little triangle of ground, which there were quite a few, there are, still are quite a few in this area, and so these were little allotments, you know, originally. But um, it was a dump when we first looked at it. There was everything thrown in here, and, and people do routinely throw garbage in here, and I'm always picking it up, but much less so since we cultivated it. If you look after a little patch of ground in the city, it's less likely to be vandalised and, and dumped on. So we started growing just everything, just demonstrating what you could grow in the city. And then we came to a point where we just wanted to share what was on this site with as many people as possible. And we felt the best way to do that was just to have a really good herb garden so people could clip herbs on the way home for their dinner. And you grow loads of herbs here that people walking by can pick up for their dinner? Yeah, we do. At one point we had as many as 60 different herbs in this little space, which is quite amazing. The tree, that's a, that's a really amazing thing that happened. Uh, these trees started popping up in our compost. Initially, I thought they were weeds, and I pulled one up, and it had an almond on the bottom of it, what looked like an almond. And so I thought, well, is this an almond tree? And it's quite amazing. So I nurtured it along, and when it finally bloomed, which was uh, last year, it turned out it was a nectarine tree. And it, we had 100 nectarines on this tree last year. And I made all sorts of things out of nectarines. They were so delicious, those nectarines, that nicer taste than any that I'd ever tasted before. Sort of white-fleshed. But we now have um, about four. That, that's another nectarine tree, but that's a yellow nectarine tree. And then there's a peach tree. I thought it was another nectarine tree, but when it started fruiting, it made little peaches. So we have a peach tree over there, and there's another little one coming along. We don't know what it is yet. Um, so they're just coming, they're obviously maybe organic fruit that's been thrown into the compost. This beautiful nectarine tree stands about 12 feet tall and dominates the corner of this tiny community garden. One of the ideas of this garden is to demonstrate the benefits of composting in a city. The benefits are easy to see. As I look up at this beautiful nectarine tree, it is not the season for them now, so I can only imagine feasting on one of these delicious sweet nectarines. I bought some recently in a supermarket and they were so bitter and no way worth the 3,000 food miles they took to get to me. The, the benefits of composting in the city are just enormous. And, and aside from the benefits in terms of the fertilizer that you create that can be used to create green spaces, um, it is considered the most important thing you can do for climate change, to compost close to source, to eliminate methane coming out of landfill. Once you put organic matter in, in landfill, it, it generally creates methane because there isn't a good enough combination of, of carbon and nitrogen. This project started as a proposal to the city to compost just for this street locally. 
to see what happened. And we never got funding for that. But we did get a little funding for the composting from a, um, a Vodafone and Conservation Ireland fund uh, about 10 years ago. And so we used that to buy a few different types of composting units, which we've been using ever since. And what are you composting? My, uh, just kitchen waste, primarily. Well, this is a, a Swedish rotating uh, big pig is the name of it. That unit is contained. You could put anything you want in there and it will compost and there's no danger of rats or anything. I mean, this is actually a water butt and that's another thing that we should all be doing in the city. This is just so useful. Um, It comes off of the roof of that house and um, you'll see the pressure. Stand back. (laughs) Because it's, uh, you know, you get a lot of great water from this and I don't see the point of digging wells and things when you have this you can access for your garden. Cathy is the director of Desireland, which runs Be Urban, a shop come workshop studio in Stony Batter. And Desireland is, is a project that's connecting um, nature, people and place to source simple solution, solutions to complex problems. Uh, so it's a mouthful. <laughs> One of their aims is to support bees living in a city. At the moment, the honeybee has a limelight. You know, people think we're losing the honeybee um, and we won't have any food as a result because the honeybee pollinates everything. It's not the honeybee exclusively that pollinates. It's, and that's why we have this banner above our new premises saying equality for all pollinators. Uh, because it's actually this, a lot of the solitary bees are these wild bees of which there are many, many different kinds. There's only one type of honeybee in, in this country There are something like 97 solitary bees in Ireland and there are 20 different types of bumblebees and they all are actually better pollinators than the honeybee. So for instance, we have a a nest of rufa in the little box over there and they are 150 times more efficient than a honeybee in their pollination. And they love fruit trees like nectarines. So I have a feeling that that's why we had such a, a fabulous crop of nectarines last year. Most of our fruits and vegetables, uh, about 70% of our, our food is, is pollinated by insects, by pollinators. And they're the things that we really love. So the fruit, you know, the, the nice vegetables and things. The other things that are wind pollinator are more the grains and the corn and that type of thing. So it's extremely important that we support these colonies. And the interesting thing is that they're doing better in the city now than they are in the countryside for a number of reasons. So the chemicals that we're spraying, the monoculture, which is acres and acres of the same thing. Bees love diversity and things that flower at different times. So things like dandelions and and ivy. Dandelions are the first thing that blossoms and ivy is the last thing that blossoms. A lot of the plants that we consider weeds, obviously, are hugely important for bees. And in the agricultural system, we're trying to get rid of weeds all the time. So that's made the countryside, oddly enough, not a very nice home for them. In the city, the opposite is happening. We don't tend to use as many sprays in the city in our own gardens because we have children and we don't want them to be exposed to them or animals. And we also want flowers to be, you know, coming up all year round if possible. So we're planting a diversity of plants which are available to the bees. There's also the heat island effect of cities 
which creates a, a warmer environment for the bees, which they like. And there's also more places for them to actually nest. We could um, definitely accentuate that by actually incorporating things in buildings that would accommodate bees. And we used to do that. There was a construction called bools, which were little um, rounded kind of holes in the walls of buildings in rows where you'd put a skep. A skep is an old-fashioned beehive made out of straw. And they used to incorporate them into the sides of buildings. It used to be an architectural feature. So we've developed what's called bait hives, which are temporary sort of refugee housing for bees in the city. Um, one of the problems with bees is, with honeybees, is they swarm. And people in the city are very afraid of these swarms of bees. In fact, bees, honeybees are at their most docile when they swarm because they fill themselves up with honey to survive what is a very arduous journey to find a new home. If we provide the type of space they're looking for in a tree in the city, they'll go for that space. And if we observe, we keep an eye on those bait hives, as we call them, around the city, we can then rehouse those bees with a beekeeper who will look after them and make sure they survive. About 80%, which is a really high percentage, of swarming bees, bee colonies die. So just simply by providing temporary refuge for them and then rehousing them with people who will look after them, we could save a lot of the the honeybee population. And we have lost a third of all our bees, so that's um, a very important thing to do. That's wild bees and, and honeybees. So by providing homes for refugee bees, we will gain so much. Nessa Winder is one of the growing number of beekeepers in Dublin. She is a member of the Fingal North Dublin Beekeepers Association. I mean, you don't have to have any land to keep bees and to get a harvest from bees. Bees give, 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 and they don't take really anything. There's no side effect, negative effect to keeping bees. They fly off, they'll forage from people's gardens, so they'll pollinate those plants, you'll get better flowers, you'll get better fruits, and then they bring back and they give you this enormous um, harvest of honey. Absolutely no loss, it's all gain, all gain, and it's all gain for all the other animals and wildlife in that area that the bees are um, foraging in. So it's all good, it's all good on the bee front. That's why, that's why I keep bees. (laughs) Dressed in a beekeeper's suit, I went with Nessa to her beehives in North Dublin. You see them there, can you, Patricia? Have a look there yourself. You can see now there's plenty of action there at the mouth of this hive, so that's a good sign. But they're fabulous. Look how industrious they are. That's a happy sound that you're recording now, and that's the sound of summer, you know. When we open up the hive, you know, they'll be um, concerned, so it'll be a kind of an irritated sound. I've got three hives. I'm going to give them all a little puff of smoke. Nessa is using a bee smoker, a handheld device which is like a tin caddy with a bellow attached. It is designed to generate smoke from the burning material held in the caddy. When the bee smells or senses the smoke, they think that there is a bushfire, so they prepare to leave the hive. And they consume as much honey as they can for their journey. Because they are full of honey, they are more calm and less likely to sting you. 
we're just getting it into the smoke into the entrance there it'll go up and through the hive then and then I'll get a whiff of it and start drinking honey and then that'll quieten them down even though I was covered head to toe in a beekeeper's outfit I was still very nervous when Nessa opened up her hives oh wow look Look, okay, there you go now. They look nice and quiet now. See, they look happy, don't they? What are you seeing? So I'm seeing a cluster of good, healthy-looking bees. One drone I noticed there, the males. But there's a good amount of girls, worker bees, females. And then I'm going to look for eggs, and that will indicate to me that there is a queen present. Can't see... Any eggs on this one? Oh, eggs, I see them. Okay, there's eggs along the bottom here. So that's good. We have a queen present. So, yeah, they're all being laid by the one lady queen. But, yeah, you should always be looking out for the queen. Um, normally, this is a first-year queen, so she's not marked yet. You catch the queen and you um, put her in a little capsule just to keep her from stopping moving for the time and you mark her with a little bit of paint on her thorax and then when you go into the hive again in the future after that you can you can see her so that's a very good frame there's plenty of young in that there's eggs all the drone cells are gone now all the drones are gone they won't be producing drones at this time of year because they don't need them they only produce them in the spring for the queens to mate with there's a good amount of stores on that, so we'll say that's one third full because most the rest of it is mostly brewed and that. So we'll stick that frame back. I'm very pleased with that. Okay, there, Patricia. I'm terrified. These bees are being good today, and I haven't been stung. And I'm just opening up their homes like this. I would sting me. These remarkable, tiny, busy little insects give us so much. Bees do not recognise boundaries or ownership. They work collectively, improving the environment as they go. This ethos is behind community food growing, where delicious, organic, zero-food-mile food is grown. And in the growing, a community is formed, and derelict spaces are turned into something beautiful and bountiful. The people I met in these gardens all came together at the end, at Bee Urban and Stony Batter, to share their harvest. Yeah, Patricia, you should try some um, of the, that, honey, the, the, this, this is the best. Yeah. Is this a competition I want to try something? Yes, oh, yes. Yeah. I'm very yeah. competitive. Two good friends. Mm, yeah. Two <laughs> <laughs> mm, Really, really lovely. So that's really that's absolutely city. delicious. That's this year, is yeah. it? That's like toffee. It's yeah, delicious. It is, yeah. It's like mm. So that's more of a city honey because she's truly in the city, whereas I'm more wilder um, varieties, whereas her would be more cultivated. Yeah. yeah. And I brought some drinking vinegar as well. Blackberry and apple cider vinegar. That looks amazing. Yeah. So that's from... The, 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 the blackberries come from where we did our walk. So th that's very simple. I use sort of equal parts honey, fruit and um, apple cider vinegar. And you kind of make it to taste and you let it infuse um, for about two or three weeks. Drinking vinegars are a bit of an acquired taste, I think. Like they've got that tartness of vinegar, but they've got the sweetness of the fruit as well. So they're very quickly acquired. Very delicious. Lovely. 
That is the thing. Food is all about sharing and sharing the stories that have come from it. I came back a few minutes later and I was watching, watching, watching and I was, what is she doing, what is she doing? And she was trying to pull out this big dead drone, big male and she, she, got, she got his head out and then she was Pushing. like, the she was holding on there and she was trying to pull them out the hole. Sharing what they have made from their harvest. Jodine, what did you bring along? So, stewed apples with um, grated lemon and orange um, and a little bit of caster sugar. So it's nice, cold or hot, and you can put it on porridges. Or It's from the um, IADT orchard. It's around the corner from my house, yeah. It's beautifully cooked. It's just barely broken down. still tastes very fresh. You know, sometimes when people stew apple, when I stew apple, I over-stew it, so it has that... Mush. You mush. Yeah, yeah he has it. There's, there's also my uh, nectarine chutney here. That looks amazing. Oh, wow. yeah, tell us about that. And so it goes on. We share the food we have grown and lovingly prepared. These remarkable food gardens that stretch from tiny plots to acre sites to community orchards, they are feasts for us all to enjoy. A City Feast is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee. Narrated and produced by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Contact Studio.